Beyond the enormous controversy it generated upon its release in 1987, Fatal Attraction today holds several curious points of cinematic interest. For starters, there's the film's opening shots. The film is set in New York, unquestionably one of the most filmed locations in the world. The challenge then was to give audiences a fresh look at the teeming metropolis. From King Kong, The Naked City, On the Waterfront and Breakfast at Tiffany's, right through to the likes of West Side Story, Midnight Cowboy, Dog Day Afternoon, Taxi Driver and Manhattan, each film has been challenged with looking afresh at the city that never sleeps. Some go for kinetic energy, others steaming decay, while elsewhere we find rapturous romanticism. But what Fatal Attraction opted for was a series of languorous panoramic shots of the Manhattan skyline at dusk. The camera gently pans across the city as the sun slips beyond the horizon and leaves the skyscrapers in silhouette. As the images dissolve over one another, we hear the soft sounds of the streets below. Police sirens and trains filled with commuters, the easy hum of a city, either powering down from a day's trading or gearing up for a night on the town. And then slowly, the lens focuses in on a particular window. As the camera zooms in on its chosen subject, we hear a television set playing from within the apartment. This low-key opening is deliberately at odds with the melodramatic thriller that will follow, and that is just one of the tricks that Fatal Attraction borrowed from Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, the opening shots of Fatal Attraction borrow from the opening shots of not just one, but two films from The Master of Suspense, Rear Window and Psycho. But that is not the only interesting thing about the opening sequence. If you pay attention to the credits, you will read that it was written by James Dearden. And that credit reads, from his original screenplay. In all my years looking at films, I cannot recall a single other instance of this curio. But it can be explained when we delve into James Dearden's CV. Dearden is a son of the successful British filmmaker Basil Dearden, most famous for the crime thriller The Blue Lamp, the heist picture The League of Gentlemen, and Victim starring Dirk Bogart that concerned a gay man trying to escape from blackmail. With Basil Dearden being such a successful director, it came as little surprise that the son followed in the father's footsteps. Beginning his career as a runner and editing room assistant on television commercials, James Dearden then set about writing and directing his own short films, one of which shared the Golden Bear at the 1978 Berlin Film Festival. A number of years later, he made a second short film, this one quite long, nearly 50 minutes in length, called Diversion. It tells the sexually charged tale of a London writer who stays in the city while his wife and daughter head off to the country for the weekend. Can I ask you something? What? Why don't you have a date tonight, Saturday night? I did have a date. I stood him up. That was the phone call I made. Does that make you feel good? Does it make me feel bad? Where's your wife? Where's my wife? My wife is in the country with uh, her parents visiting the weekend. And you're here with a strange girl being a naughty boy. I don't think having dinner with anybody's a crime. 
He indulges in a fling with a single woman, but realises that there are consequences to his actions because a single woman will not leave him alone. So what can I get you? Scotch, I've got vodka, I just and I should leave them. Cut the shit, will you? Just cut it! I don't know what you're up to, but I'm gonna tell you it's gonna stop right now. No, it's not gonna stop. It's gonna go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. What responsibilities? I'm pregnant. I'm gonna have our child. Alex, that's your choice, honey. That has nothing to do with me. I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, this is the way you do it, huh? Showing up at my apartment! Well, what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls, you change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. There, the film abruptly stops, staunchly refusing to pursue the possible dramatic avenues it has opened up, opting instead to leave the narrative very much unconcluded. As it stood at 50 minutes, Diversion was a carefully balanced story and Dearden's writing had proven to be tight, nuanced and ambiguous. However frustrating that may sound to some people, to two Hollywood producers it was intriguing. Stanley Jaffe had won an Academy Award for Kramer vs. Kramer in 1979, while at the mere age of 35, Sherry Lansing had been appointed as the first female president of 20th Century Fox. Jaffe and Lansing set up their own production company, and one of the first properties they acquired was the remake rights to Dearden's short film. What Jaffe and Lansing planned to do was simply broaden the scope of the story to bring in the husband's professional life, embellish the wife's presence, and explore the single woman's experience. And while all that was happening, they intended to adhere to Dearden's story and keep it as open-ended as possible. The thing was that in order to do so, they needed a director who was very well versed in subtle melodrama. Such directors are few and far between, which doesn't do much to explain the producer's decision to approach Brian De Palma. Now, remarkably gifted as De Palma is, his gifts do not lie in melodrama. Moreover, subtlety has never been De Palma's strong suit. His strong suit has been exploring the nature of cinema itself, and so strong is he, that he can play with an audience's feelings as a conductor can lead an orchestra. But in a way, that may explain the thinking behind Jaffe and Lansing's decision. They believed what the story needed was a director's firm hand to guide the audience through the crucial shifts in Dearden's script. I, um, oh, this is terribly embarrassing. I, I just um, wanted to say sorry for what happened. I had no right to put you through all that. Nothing happened, okay? I was going through a bad time and everything was coming to a crisis and... But I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm really all right and, and thank you. You have to thank me. Oh yeah, I do. A lot of guys would have just run away. I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't been there. Well, you, uh... You look good. Matter of fact, you look great. Thanks. They wanted to draw out what they saw as lying at the heart of the story. The thrill of succumbing to the temptation of infidelity and then experiencing all the nervous, frightening consequences that emanate from it. Compelling as that mix may sound, De Palma decided to back out as he felt that as the feature-length screenplay was developing, 
it bore too much of a resemblance to Clint Eastwood's 1971 directorial debut, Play Misty for Me. So Jaffe and Lansing looked around for another director, and then they made another curious decision. They bought in Adrian Lyne, a filmmaker who would have cut his teeth in the world of UK advertising before graduating to deliver slick, vapid and controversial feature films such as Flashdance and Nine and a Half Weeks. But again, that explains the thinking behind Jaffe and Lansing's decision. They wanted to heighten the erotic nature of the story, and Lyne seemed the ideal talent to do it. Controversy aside, Jaffe and Lansing were absolutely correct in their calculations. Well, they were absolutely correct in all but one. When they test-previewed the film, audiences hated the inconclusive and ambiguous ending. So Jaffe and Lansing went back and had Dearden rewrite it and Lyne reshoot it. Which brings me back to the beginning. While Lyne was quoting Hitchcock at the start, for the climax, he unashamedly ripped off French director Henri-Georges Clouseau's 1955 thriller Les Diaboliques, which gave audiences heart attacks with its finale set in a bathroom. But that hardly mattered to the people who matter, because when the movie opened in the autumn of 1987, the producers got exactly what they wanted. A movie that exposed a public nerve, which is precisely why the film became such a box office hit. But honestly, expertly crafted as it is, Fatal Attraction is an unfair and somewhat ugly film. The way it treats Glenn Close's character, the deeply damaged Alex Forster, is very unpleasant. Glenn Close had undertaken considerable research in creating the character, and her performance is, like the writing in Dearden's original short, nuanced and disciplined. What is fascinating to be challenged by a part like Alex Forrest is, what happened? What went wrong? But you never know that. I mean, she's a character that never has the opportunity for the audience to actually understand what is making her tick. So all, these are all secrets, and you see a little bit of that thing, that strange thing about her father. Some, one time she says that he's dead, and then she says that he's alive, and you know, why does she throw up in the bushes when she's spying on the family? And all those things, you know, made me actually love her very much and realize that rather than a psychopathic villain, she was somebody out of control in great need of help. But in the end, the audiences wanted her dead, and who in Hollywood is ever strong enough to ever go against public opinion?